You're listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. For more teaching and resources, visit LargerStory.com. While the children were up here, Neil came down and sat next to me, looked at me in some surprise and said, Are you speaking this morning? Just important to feel warmed and welcome. After you ladies hear my wife speak this afternoon, you'll be disappointed that I'm on again tonight. Rachel speaks all over the country, and uh, she and I spoke together some time ago at a Bible college, and her tapes outsold mine two to one. So I don't permit her to speak with me anymore. We announced yesterday about the, uh, the videotaping. We've already begun that this morning. My father and I had a lengthy conversation this morning under the cameras, and God seems to be blessing richly from the outset. We really do covet your prayers. We think it might be an important project that might be a real encouragement to some of God's people. We had a sign-up sheet for this afternoon when I'm going to be sharing for about 20 or 30 minutes on the meaning of fatherhood, and the room that we're going to be holding that in, the Andrews lounge, is it called, on the second floor of Chesapeake Lodge, can only hold about 50 people, 40 in chairs and 10 on the floor. They like that for the purposes of camera. And uh, that's already signed up. So those who have signed up will sure appreciate your coming and coming there at about 345 if you can, so we can start promptly with the cameras at 4. And uh, this is a real good crew. There's about seven or eight guys that are involved in setting up all the lights. And if you've been involved in video work before, you know it can be very tedious. As they say, no, we've got to get the lights just right here. It's wrong here. It's right there. But uh, these guys are good, and they're going to have the thing all set up. So it should be a, a fairly non-intrusive kind of an environment for those who are coming this afternoon. Then tomorrow at 4 o'clock in the Chesapeake Auditorium, uh, it's open to all those who choose to come. Whatever number of seats are in there, I don't know. I suppose 150 or 200. And uh, those who would like to come to that, you're more than welcome. And uh, my father will be uh, sharing then for about 45 or 50 minutes. He'll be talking about a whiff of heaven, sharing something of his life and how God has worked in his life. Let's pray as we begin. Father, our topic is finding you. Help us to understand that you're not playing hard to get. That there's something in us that makes it difficult for us to find you, that you are at work behind the scenes in each of our lives doing what needs to be done to draw us closer to yourself. Father, you're committed to us. You're committed to nearness with us. What a thought that you enjoy being with us. Father, help us to see that there's much in our lives that interferes with that drawing process, nothing that you can't handle, nothing that you're not powerful enough or loving enough or gracious enough to overcome, but there's much that must be disrupted. And Father, as we talk about what must be disrupted today, I pray that you'll deliver us from a a morbid feel as we talk about some of the hard things. Deliver us from a a negative-sounding tone. Help us to realize that all of us are in resurrection ground. We're all looking forward to being with you someday, and that victory really is ours in Jesus. But the process sometimes is tough. So as we look at the process, keep our eyes fixed on the cross that Steve has been so effectively sharing with us. That's our hope, and that's our cause for joy, whatever we're going through. Father, I pray for the possible misunderstandings from this morning's message, that your spirit will be the guardian of our story as we slice into our lives one more time. 
Teach us what you'd have for us, I pray in Christ's name. Amen. We sang this morning one of my favorite hymns, uh, No One Ever Cared for Me Like Jesus. And one of the lines in that hymn in the first verse is, I would tell you how he changed my life completely. I would suppose that if we took the time to get up front and to honor that thought, and somebody were to say, I'm going to tell you how he changed my life completely, that everyone in the audience who knows that person would like time for rebuttal. Whose life has been changed completely? Anybody longing for a little more change than has already been experienced in your life? I'm a psychologist, and uh, people come to me because they want to get their lives changed. I told the staff last night about a time years ago when a young woman came to see me who was very, very depressed, and she wanted to be changed somewhat completely. She wanted to move from depression to joy. She was miserable. And as so often happens, when a person comes to see a professional psychologist in a private office on an appointment basis, they don't know the individual, so they spend the first period of time testing the individual to see if they're really willing to open up to this individual. Well, she spent five sessions, literally, saying nothing of any real substance, just seeing if I was the kind of person she could trust. Well, the fifth session, she decided, apparently, that she would open up, and she began the session in a very different mood than she had begun the previous four, and I knew something was up. And as she began telling about some of the struggles in her life and how she was really feeling and some of the problems she was facing, I found myself getting excited because I knew I had the chance, perhaps this hour, in a way that I hadn't had in the previous four hours, to really touch this young woman's life. Now... What happens when you get excited? Doesn't your body sometimes tense up? When you get excited, don't you sort of tense like that a bit? Well, I was doing my counseling at that time in my career. This is years ago, many years ago. I was sitting on a swivel desk chair, the kind that you have behind your desk that you can move back and it goes on wheels and it tips back and forth and moves around. And I was sitting on that chair as she began to share very deeply. And as she shared deeply and as she began to cry, and as I began, ex- began to get excited, my body became tense, unbeknownst to me, and I began to press down on the floor with my feet, which was the part of my anatomy that was at that point touching the floor. And the chair began to go back just a little bit as I pressed down on the floor with my feet. And she continued to talk about terrible things in her background, terrible pains, terrible tragedies, and I was getting more and more excited. Don't get ahead of me, folks. And... <laughs> And I kept on pressing down on the floor and my tension more and more. The chair kept going back further and further and further until when she was at the literal depths of her depression, I fell over. And I've never seen a client go from depression to hysterical laughter more quickly. It was the quickest cure, I think, in the history of psychotherapy. And I was lying there on the floor, but I'm a professional, you know, so I had to look dignified. So I tried to get up, not realizing my arm was caught in the arm of the chair, and I took a second tumble. And she just doubled over in laughter all the more. I finally was able to get up and straighten my tie and sat down. And she said to me, still in laughter, she said, Dr. Crabb, that was the best thing you could have done. (laughs) To which I replied, well, I'm just glad that it helped. (laughs) Since then, I've been looking for other methods. What does it mean to really change? And what does it mean to, to help someone change? Folks, my views of change are changing. The older I get, my understanding of what it means to move toward maturity are becoming very, very different than they were 10, 15, 20 years ago. What does change look like? What does maturity look like? 
Let me suggest to you a simple little sentence. I don't offer this as something comprehensive or any attempt to be profound, but a simple thought that, that in my mind at least, moves us in the direction of understanding the kind of change that develops in a person's life to the degree that they find God and experience the reality of his character more and more richly. That's what it's all about, to know God more deeply. It's not to get over the depression. It's not to somehow eliminate the sexual urges within you that are deviant that you hate so badly. It's not to get over the anxiety which keeps you awake at night. It's not to learn how to get over your insomnia. I struggle with that. It's not to get over that. It's somehow in the middle of all of our problems to find God. You're tired of the cliche by now, but we must not use God to solve our problems. We must rather use our problems as opportunity to find God. If counselors got a hold of that, it would revolutionize most Christian counseling theory. It's a very different way of looking at it. Here's a sentence that defines a little bit at least, or hints at, maybe something of the change that comes when a person finds God, to the degree a person finds God. Now, you do understand what I'm talking about here. I'm not talking about finding God in salvation. I found the Lord when I was eight years old at Sandy Hill. I'm grateful for that. But have I found all of him? Well, of course not. He's infinite. He's limitless. And he invites me to explore more and more of him until a deep change within me takes place. And I, and I have come to him in a confidence that escapes most of us, a confidence that he really is good. Here's the change. Maturity looks like this, I believe. It reflects a confidence in the goodness of God that frees us to continue with a sense of meaning and a taste of joy. Is that what you come to when you go to a counselor? To develop a confidence in the goodness of God that frees us to continue with a sense of meaning and a taste of joy? Change doesn't mean the end of problems. Don't define change in terms of a better self-image. That's good. That's helpful. That's not central. Don't define change as a reduction in self-hatred. Don't define change as fewer problems in your life. Define change as a confidence no matter what's happening in your life, no matter how many planes crash in your lives. Define confidence, define change rather, as a confidence no matter how many sleepless nights you spend. Define change as a confidence no matter what's happening inside of your soul that nobody else knows about. Define it as a confidence in the character, the goodness of God that frees us not to morbidly continue worrying about all the things that are wrong in our lives, but in the middle of all the things that continue to be wrong and all the struggles that continue to plague us and all the difficulties that continue to overburden us until we think we're going to split, that somehow it's possible to continue on, but not again in just mere survival, but to continue on with a sense of meaning. There's a point to what we're doing. Do you know I've been very tense about this video series? I didn't sleep well at all last night. And as I laid there in bed about one or two in the morning and my wife said, why don't you do something? Take a pill, something, you know. Every time I'm about to sleep, I hear you go, ah. you know, if I'm not going to sleep, she's not going to sleep. That's a, supposed to be one in marriage. And as I'm lying there wide awake last night, just thinking about my part in the video series, obviously the motivation's all messed up. I'm not simply thinking of the glory of God. I'm thinking about how am I going to look on camera? Am I going to remember my lines? Am I going to get it right? All that's going through my mind. I don't brag about that, nor do I apologize. It's just the way I am. Sorry. And I found myself saying, God, what are you supposed to be doing right now? I wouldn't mind a little taste of peace. 
I wouldn't mind a little bit of, a little more of a sense of your presence. Have you ever noticed you can't orchestrate God's response? Is it possible in the middle of a sleepless night to develop a confidence in the goodness of God that comes from data other than the immediate? C.S. Lewis, reporting his conversion, said this, What kept him from the faith for so many years, among other things, was the fact that he could not look around at the world and, as an intelligent man, come to the conclusion that God was good. It just couldn't be, he said. As I look at all the suffering, I cannot conclude from the data that I'm watching that is incontrovertible, that is before my eyes every day, I cannot conclude that God is good. And then one day it occurred to him, but I know some people whose intelligence I respect who think he is. They see the same data. Are they looking at another source of data to conclude that he's good? If I looked at me at two this morning and said, God, what are you doing for me? I'd have very little basis at that moment of sleeplessness to conclude, God, you're wonderful. His name is wonderful. I couldn't have sung it at two this morning on the basis of the data that was pressing me in the face right then. Do we have a larger context in those sorts of data where we can say that, God, I have a confidence in your goodness. Even at two in the morning when I can't sleep, motivation's all messed up about tomorrow. It's not, it's not everything, uh, everything in me is not the way I wish it were by a long shot. But do I have a confidence, God, not in me, not in the fact that I'm together, but do I have a confidence in your goodness that somehow frees me from what? Frees me from self-centered preoccupation. Frees me from having to talk about my problems all the time. Frees me from having to spend hours working to think through how to get me straightened out. You see, when we really have a confidence in the goodness of God, I'm afraid I'm not I'm going to say this next sentence. I may have to take it back. If we really had a confidence in the goodness of God, people like me would be out of business. Well, folks, I believe that. That's why people like me who are in business need to see to it that we're working to put ourselves out by working with people, not to obsess about all that's happening on the inside, but rather to move into their lives in a way that builds confidence in the goodness of God, that frees them then to get on with their life, not to become more self-centered, but rather to continue on with a sense of meaning and a taste of joy. I spoke with a college chaplain a few months ago. And he said that he's talked to a number of students on campus whose parents are working through the steps to recover from some of their difficulties, their alcoholism and other things. And the students, he told me it was a pattern that he observed that I think is very striking and important thing to observe. He said this, that the students, in every case, said to the chaplain this, my mother or my father who have gone through the program to get over some of their codependency and to become a little more self-accepting, to get over their addictive disorders, have in fact become less addicted to certain things and their problems with sexual addiction or alcoholism, whatever, seems to be under control. But I still don't like going home because they're no more loving. They're still self-centered. What does it mean to change? To preoccupy with yourselves now. A confidence in the goodness of God that frees us to continue with a sense of meaning and a taste of joy. Take your Bibles, and I want us to look at some questions that might help us develop that confidence if we ask them with the honesty and the passion that they deserve. First John. I want you to observe what John says. Steve's good friend, the Apostle John. 
what he says in chapter 2 and verse 12, I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. Verse 13 of 1 John 2, I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you've known the Father. And I write to you, fathers, because, same words exactly, you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you're strong. The word of God lives in you, and you've overcome the evil one. Let me suggest that in that particular passage, we have three phases of maturity. Each one deepened by asking the right question. Notice the three phases, the little children, a phase that none of us should ever leave in terms of forgetting what was true of that, but moving on. I write to you, little children, because you know that your sins have been forgiven. You're forgiven and you're in the family and you know that. That's what's true of the newborn believer. It's also what's true of the mature believer who thrills more in that than in anything else. My associate Dan Allender was telling of a time he had lunch with a man named William Hendrickson. He's with the Lord now, but he was a commentator and wrote uh, a number of commentaries, New Testament epistles and the Gospels as well. And when he was maybe in his late 70s, early 80s, just a wise, godly man who had spent the last many, many years immersed in the scriptures. He was a scholar at the top of his uh, profession, a deep, rich scholar, knew the Lord well. And he was having lunch with my associate, who at that time was a seminary student, a first-year seminary student, and a pastor. And the, um, uh, the pastor was there, my friend was there, and William Hendrickson was there. And William Hendrickson turned to the pastor, my 20-some-year-old friend, seminary student, listening in. And he said this to the pastor. He said, you know, now that I'm about 80, 81 years old, and I've been in the Bible all these years, I think I'm just beginning to understand the gospel. And my associate told me later that as he sat there, he thought, well, that's a shame. <laughs> You know, I mean, I already got it knocked. I've been in seminary for a year. This guy's taking a long time figuring this thing out. There are depths to being a little child that we must continue to plummet, continue to explore and to involve ourselves with. Little children are those who know that their sins have been forgiven on account of his name, and they've known the Father in verse the end of verse 13. They're forgiven, and they're in the family, and they're aware of that. What's true of young men? They're aware of the battle. Little children are aware of the the belongingness. I'm forgiven, I belong, and that's good. Young men are aware of the fact, and we're not speaking literally of young men, we're speaking of phases in maturity, phases on the road to finding God. Young men are those who know that there's more to the Christian life than just being forgiven and in the family. There's also a battle to fight, and the battle is so extreme and so difficult that if I don't know the power of God through his word, then the power of the evil one is going to win because nobody can stand up against his power but the power of God. I'm in the battle and I'm aware of it. That's true of young men, fathers. The third category, perhaps the most advanced level of maturity, if I can put it that way, are those who have known him who is from the beginning. I want to explore that with you this morning a little bit, and I want to suggest that each of those three phases of maturity involves an understanding that continually requires deepening. Remember Paul's words to Timothy when he said that I want you to continue in the things that you've learned, and what's the next phrase? And have become assured of. I've learned much being raised in a Christian home and being sent to good camps like Sandy Hill. I've learned much. What have I been assured of? 
Where is my deep, deep confidence? And I want to suggest, as we start talking about little children now, and that's all of us, I want to suggest that each of us as little children in the faith are those who understand something about forgiveness, something about what it means to belong. But that needs to be deepened in a way that is deepened in perhaps very, very few people. What is the single most important question that a little child asks? And when that question is asked deeply, when that question is asked in a wrestling match with God, what happens? I'm going to talk about four questions. The first one has to do with little children. I'll tell you what it is in just a little bit. Let me prepare the way for it by saying this. I was in Los Angeles about a year ago doing a seminar, and um, a 30-year-old young woman asked for some time to chat. We had a chance to interact together. She was a Jewish young woman, married and had three children, and she had just been saved literally for three months. She had just met the Messiah three months before our conversation about a year ago. And in the course of our conversation, she said, um, she told me some pretty horrible things. She said, you know, things are really tough in my family in lots of ways. My, my husband is on, the, is, is on the point now of divorcing me. He's just gone to his lawyer. He doesn't like the fact that I've turned into a bit of a fanatic as a religious person now. He's not very strongly Jewish, but he has no time for Christianity as I understand it. So he's thinking of divorcing me. He's already been to a lawyer. It's not sure if he will or not, but if he does, I've got no money. And I have one child with some special learning disabilities, has to go to a particular school. And we live in an area where the school is available for my child to go for free. And if my husband divorces me, I'll have no money. I'll have to move, and I have no idea what will happen to my child. And as she was saying all this, she was smiling. And I'm thinking, what do you smile about? And then she said, um, and I got a really, really hard phone call last night, said with a smile. And I said, what was your hard phone call? She said, my father, back in New York, a very strong Orthodox Jewish family, uh, called me literally last night and said to me, I'm calling you to announce you are no longer my daughter. You're out of my family. I'm embarrassed by your conversion to this phony religion. Never call me. Never write me. I will never call you. I will never write you. I disown you completely. You're no longer my daughter. And she's smiling. And I said to her, I was broken by this. I mean, it got me. And I was, I think I had some tears in my eyes. I looked at her and I said, man, that's hard. Boy, what are you, how are you going to handle that? And she saw my pain and she put her hand on my shoulder and said, oh, Dr. Crabb, it's okay. Just relax. <laughs> and I said, tell me I'm open, you know. And she said, well, I have Jesus. He's my Lord, and the Father's my Father, and, and my sins are forgiven, so everything's all right. That's the beginning stage. What's ahead for that young woman? Does that need to be deepened? Would you challenge her on that? No. Would you rejoice with her? Of course. Would you want to keep tabs for the next four, five, ten, twenty, fifty years? One of the things that's that God requires of his little children is that they permit him to disrupt them. I'd rather believe that this woman has a wonderful, simple, precious faith that I wouldn't want to critique or put down or demean in any way, but I would suggest that a Christian save three months who's rejoicing in God as her father and Jesus as her savior, even when her earthly father disowns her, her, her husband uh, 
divorces her, her kids have problems, as she just has joy in the middle of all that, I want to suggest to you that's going to be challenged as the years go by. Something inside of her is going to need to be disrupted. Are you aware, I'm sure you are if you live honestly at all, that, that sanctification is primarily a matter of disruption? Disruption of what? What, what does God disrupt? What did Jeremiah mean when God said to Jeremiah that I'm sending you to the nations and what I want you to do to the nations, to my people included, what I want you to do is I want you to tear down and pull out. He's speaking of a building and a garden and I want you to take the building that's already been built and I want you to smash it. I want you to disrupt all that's been built already and then I want you to take all the stones of which that building was built and I want you to reduce them to dust. The disruption process must be complete. I want you to go to the garden where people have already planted their vegetables and their crops and their flowers and I want you to pull everything out and I want you to destroy it completely. I want no remnants of the original building or the original garden. That's what I mean by disruption. And then he says, and I want you to go build and plant. I want you to build a new building and plant a new garden. Put off the old man. Put on the new. My question for this morning is this. What needs to be disrupted? What is that young Jewish girl going to find as God, in a sanctifying work through his spirit, begins to disrupt her? What's going to start taking place in her life? You know, whatever it is, it's real bad. Whatever it is that God wants to disrupt, that God determines to disrupt in my life, is a real bad thing. What is it? Look at Ezekiel 23 for just a verse, would you? Get a feel for the severity of what we're talking about. Ezekiel 23. And in verse 22, the Lord talking about his people says, Therefore, Ahalabah, this is what the sovereign Lord says, Ezekiel 23 and verse, 30, 30, verse 22, I'm sorry. I will stir up your lovers. Something's wrong with you, needs to be disrupted, and you, those you, you've gone to, I'll stir them up against you. Those you turned away from and disgust, and I'll bring them against you from every side, the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, etc. And they will come, verse 24, against you with weapons, chariots, and wagons, with a throng of people. They'll take up positions against you on every side with large and small shields, with helmets. And look at this last phrase in verse 24. I will turn you over to them for punishment. Here's some disruption, folks. And they will punish you according to their standards. I will direct my jealous anger against you. This is the Father referring to his children, a loving, gracious God who's saying that I know that your deepest joy is in knowing me, and yet there's something inside of you that's getting in the way of that. And I'm going to deal with that severely. Young Jewish lady, you're thrilled now with my presence. You have a confidence in my goodness. That's wonderful. It's deserved. I praise you for it or I bless you for it. I've given it to you and I'm glad you have it. But as years go by, you'll realize I have more work to do on you. There's something inside that must be disrupted, something which is terrible, something which when I disrupted in the Jews years ago led to some terrible things. I will direct my jealous anger against you and they will deal with you in fury. Now imagine God standing still and watching his children be dealt with like this. They will cut off your noses and your ears. Any of you fathers stand by while some person comes up and takes a knife and cuts off your kid's ear? What was so bad about the Jews that God was willing to allow that sort of atrocity to happen? The only point I make from that passage is this. Whatever it is, it's pretty bad. 
Are we aware that there really is something pretty bad in us? And that God needs to disrupt us and he needs to take us as little children who are excited about life and who say, yes, it's wonderful. Jesus is my savior and the father is my father and the spirit is my comforter. And I know my doctrines and I go to church and I'm living for the Lord and it's exciting and it just gets better and better every day. Well, it doesn't always work that way. The Lord comes along and says, I'm going to work inside of you. There's something wrong and I'm going to deal with it. And it's something which if I dealt with it in justice, I would be justified in cutting off your nose and cutting off your ear. Now, what is it that's so bad? I told the story last night to the staff. When I was a youngster, one of the things that that I found out that I could do fairly well, I was a rather average athlete, a bit okay in sports, I never stood out. I was the first eighth grader to make the football team, and I was the first eighth grader to quit the football team. There seemed like too much sweating every afternoon. I could go home and enjoy my home, so I quit. I wasn't going to be a standout in football. I was okay. I'm a decent athlete. I played ping pong a lot. I used to be real good at ping pong. I played tennis a fair amount. I played golf some. I'm a decent athlete. But nothing about my athletic ability does much for helping me feel really good about myself. But I found something, and we all found something. What I found early on was that, by God's decision, no credit to me, I was able to get pretty good grades. Remember when I was in first grade, the first day I walked into class in first grade, the teacher assigned all... didn't take me long to figure out. The red table was for the slow kids. The yellow table was for the average kids. The green table was for the smart kids. The teacher took a look at me and put me at the red table. That's for the slow kids. About 20 kids in class, and she put about seven or eight of us at this red table, if I get my color straight here. She put us at the slow table. I think it was the red one. I remember sitting there and just, I'm going to get to that green table. I made it in two weeks. Anything bad about that? Dobson says, and I think Dobson does tremendous stuff, Dobson says that you need to help your kid develop a good self-esteem, find something he's good at, and encourage it. And I agree with that. My boys are really good athletes, and we've supported them in their sports, and they're, they're doing all right. I think it's great. Not opposed to that. Do you hear anything at all in me that's wicked? Deserve to have my nose cut off? As I sit at that red table and say, I will not stay here. I'm going to get to that green table because I am smart. And she's going to know about it. Well, I made it to the red table in two weeks and been able to stay there fairly well ever since. When I went to graduate school, my first year in graduate school, I studied literally 60 hours a week. I was first in my class. Am I bragging? Well, by the time I finish this, you realize it's not bragging. When I was about... Oh, years ago when my boys were 8 or 10, I told the story last night, my boys were 8 or 10, and I went out to fly a kite with my boys. Went about three or four miles away from home to an abandoned airfield, and there was a big, long runway, you know, the big concrete runway, and my boys and I, we parked our little Toyota station wagon, and, and I got the kite, and the 8 and 10-year-old boys are with me, and I wanted to get this kite up in the air, and I began running backwards to try to catch the wind to get the kite up, and as I was running backwards, as fast as I could go to get the kite up in the air, I didn't see something in my path as I was going backwards, and I tripped and I fell, and I cracked my head real hard against the concrete. 
And I, did, I had a real severe concussion. And I was disoriented. I knew we had to get home. I didn't know how to do that exactly. And I knew there was a car there. And somehow we had to get in the car and go from the car to our home. So my 10-year-old boy drove us home. And I kind of told him what to do as much as I could figure out. You know, press that thing down there. And not, not that hard, you know. And he drove us home three or four miles across city streets. We pulled up in our driveway. And Rachel happened to be outside. And she noticed Kepi driving the car. <clears throat> she right away picked up something was not normal and he put on the brakes you know and he got out and he said daddy's hurt you know and they rushed me to the hospital and I got to the hospital and for the first half hour as I was in the hospital you know what I did I screamed you know the words that I screamed I'll never think again Rachel was there and she and a good friend had a big piece of poster board and wrote the word your brain is okay and I looked at it oh, God, I'll never think again and I screamed and hollered why I was afraid my God had died see what I'm saying what I want to suggest to you is this that God needs to disrupt us and he needs to disrupt us this way he needs to expose that there is a process going on with us within us that began with Adam and Eve and it begins with a question about his goodness. God, are you really good? Eve wasn't convinced. Eve was duped, the Bible says, completely deceived by the serpent. We're told that twice in the New Testament. She was completely duped into believing that God was holding out on her. There's something better, and he was not going to give it to her, and she was going to go get the best by disobeying God. That meant she was looking at God and saying, I don't think you're all that good. And then Adam comes along, and he wasn't deceived. And I presume what that means is that now we have this huge dilemma, a wife who has fallen, who comes to him and says, here, take a bite. And he's saying, what do you do with this situation? I don't know what to do. I'm not sure if you are up to handling this. I'm going to go ahead and take a bite. Both of them were questioning, ultimately, the character of God. And that's the disease. God, I'm not convinced you're all that good. Now, where does that leave you when you have a doubt about the goodness of God? The quote that I've mentioned to you several times that I think is so profound by Oswald Chambers, the root of all sin is the suspicion that God isn't good. It's what's got Adam and Eve off to a bad start. And it's what has, make me, what has made me over the years depend more on my brain than on my Savior to pull things off. God, I'm not sure if you're all that good. I'm not sure if you're really someone who can be trusted in the middle of all this, this miserable world. And where does that leave me? Now, once I don't believe God is good, once I question his goodness, then... And can you identify with this? Maybe you can, maybe you can't. Then you become aware of a terror in your soul. Is there no one there who's for me? Then you start becoming aware of an anger and your fist begins to clench at God and you say, you put me here, why aren't you doing a better job? I'm not sure if you're good, I'm terrified. What's the matter with you? What's the next step? What's true in the heart of every human personality which God has to disrupt? I doubt his goodness. On the basis of that, I turn to somebody else and say, you be for me what God has not been. Mother, dad, wife, husband, pastor, friend. I'm depending on you. You be to me. I doubt God. Now I depend on you. The second step. What happens then when you start depending on people as everybody, every child naturally does coming into this world because every child has inherited this disease of doubting the goodness of God? 
And every child has data to support his diseased hypothesis as he looks at the disappointments of life and he says, I don't see that God can be good given that this has happened in my life. And then what happens? He turns to other people, depends on them, and they don't come through. And pretty soon a hatred develops in the soul of every child towards the person on whom he's most depending. Jay Adams is right, I believe, when he says that 80% of all emotional problems have a lot to do with deep rage. You get mad because our survival depends on it. I know I need resources outside of myself. I'm not sure if I can trust you, so how about you? Well, you didn't come through either. Now, how are you going to survive now? You haven't got God, you haven't got your parents, you haven't got anybody, you're all alone. So what do you do? Now, follow this, and we'll just take a two, couple of minutes on it. It's almost time for lunch. Follow this and see if you can get my point. What do you do at that point? What do you do when God is doubted? When you turn to others, they fail, you get mad at them. Now, how do you handle it? Next thing you do is you start hating yourself. You know why? Not because it's conviction of sin. Most self-hatred has nothing to do with conviction of sin. But self-hatred becomes a maneuvering ploy. What I mean by that is this. If I could believe that the reason mother didn't come through for me, the reason dad abandoned me, the reason this person doesn't like me, the reason nobody is for me, is something in me that I could correct, then I have hope. I can see why my uncle molested me when I was a little girl. It's because I was just too sensual when I was five or six. I'm just a real immoral kind of a person. Now that I'm a Christian, I will be so straight-laced, I will never wear anything that will let anybody know that I'm a woman, and I will be the most prudish human being on the face of the earth. That's who I'll be. Now I think I've made it. Oh, I hate that sensuality within me. I hate those lusts. Isn't that terrible of me? I just despise myself. But if I can hide it all, then I'll be okay. Folks, that's just living in the flesh. It's not conviction of sin. It's not the work of the Spirit. It's the work of the flesh. I doubt God. I need you. I hate you. But I hate me. I'm the problem. I'll work on it. I promise I'll get better. And I'm going to find some way to survive this world. I know how I can survive this world. I got a good brain. I'll get good grades. I'll get a PhD. I'll write books. I'll get good thoughts. My brother encouraged me just this morning as I was sitting here before the service and turned to me and said, I just want to express gratitude to you for the ministry you've had in my life through some of your books. And I just pray that someday God will be able to give me some of the insights that he seems to have given you. I appreciate that from my brother. It was kind. It was meant to be very encouraging, and it was. Can you see that I have a structure within me which could take that and misuse it? I'm not sure if God's enough. You've got to come through. Well, you haven't done very good. I hate you. Well, no, I can't tolerate that. It must be me. I know. If I'll find something within me, I'm smart. I'll do things with my mind that will get me invited to Sandy Cove, and I'll have audiences tell me, hey, you think pretty good. And I'll go, yeah, yeah. Praise the Lord. And inside I'll say, I've made it, and God says, you deserve to have your nose cut off. And I'm going to disrupt you. And anger? No, in restoring love. And my response as he begins to disrupt me is to ask the first question. Here it is. It's real simple. God, do you really love me? That's the first question you have to wrestle with in the middle of disruption. You know his answer? His answer is no. Not the way you define love. You've all heard out of Lewis's wonderful series of Narnia, the words that were said about Aslan. 
when Lucy was scared to cross his path? The words were these about Aslan when she said, Are you safe? And the response was, I'm good, but I'm not safe. Folks, a lot of people have groups to try to help people recover. They argue that they need to be safe groups. It's not true. Groups where people grow are not safe groups. They're disruptive groups. They need to be safe in terms of no threat of loss of relationship, but they need to be entirely unsafe groups, guarantee of profound disruption. Until I yield my life in a way where I begin to experience the disruption that occurs, I begin to experience the processes going on within me that just just eat me alive, that just make me feel bad and it's hard and there's difficulties going on and I'm awake in the middle of the night and struggling with things and saying, God, do you love me? And his response is, what you mean is, do I love you enough to put you to sleep? No, I love you enough to disrupt you, to get rid of that miserable structure that'll bring you to enjoying me a whole lot more. Because you don't have the idea that I'm really good. Listen, I'm thoroughly good. And I'm going to disrupt you deeply. I'm going to expose the fact that you don't believe I'm all that good. Little children, forgiven in the family. God, you love me. It's wonderful. I'm saved. And as time goes on, the disruption comes and God's love doesn't show itself as we think it's going to. And then from the deepest part of our souls, we say, God, are you all that good? Do you really love me? If you loved me, then I would think that your goodness should show itself in the following ways. And God's response is, I'm not safe. And I'm not even good the way you define good. And I don't even love you the way you define love. I love you so much more. God, do you love me? Until you ask that question, out of the deep despair and struggle of your soul, I would suggest that maybe without that question, we're not going to find God in the richness that he wants to be discovered. Tonight we'll look at the next two questions. Let's pray. Father, thank you for revealing yourself on the cross in an unmistakable way. You do love us. Father, our conceptions of love have been so twisted because we've all but in situations where love has meant getting our own way. In the sketch last night, do you love me, Daddy? Why did you take me to a doctor and let him put that needle in me? Father, all of us get very confused about that. Our definitions of love are so self-centered. Father, teach us that there's much in our souls that needs to be disrupted. And that when you disrupt us, you're really loving us. Help us to wrestle hard in the deepest part of our souls with the question that all of us are asking, do you really love us? Help us to come before you at two in the morning and wrestle with you about that. And then to leave the wrestling match with a noticeable limp. Father, we're grateful for the provisions of this week. We're thankful for the food that is being prepared now. We look forward to a time of good fellowship and a time of nourishment from the good provisions. We thank you for it all. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To subscribe, visit LargerStory.com.